0: Have you ever found yourself juggling schedules to make everything fit or collapsing onto your pillow at the end of the day with this nagging sense that you didn't get everything done that you needed to get done and that there just aren't enough hours in the day? We live in this moment in time where a lot of us experience these kinds of things, where we're scheduled and committed right up to the limits of what we can handle, and we're overloaded. And you know you're overloaded when you don't have enough time to finish with excellence the things you've committed to do. A healthy pattern of life is when we finish a project with excellence and then rest before the next project. A healthy rhythm of life is when we work from a place of rest instead of resting from a place of work. So many of us, we experience these moments regularly where we're 20 minutes late to the doctor's office because we were 10 minutes late to dropping the kids off at school because we ran out of gas two blocks from the gas station and forgot our wallet, right? These kind of moments in life where we are overscheduled and have no margin. And so when we enter these seasons, we often respond the way our culture's taught us to respond, which is to speed up, read faster, talk faster, listen faster, nod faster when the person is talking so they'll get to their point faster, and whenever we have to wait in these kind of seasons, we get frustrated. And when we're interrupted, we get angry. Have you ever been to the grocery store and just kind of calculating which, which aisle to get in? It's got the least number of cars, or so have to stop at the red light as you're pulling up, kind of calculating which lane has the least number of cars. And this way of living that our society lives in, it's not working. It doesn't work. Life is cluttered. We get to the end of the day and we look back and we have no sense of the day. It's just all kind of a blur. And when we're like this, when we're over busy and life starts to fray at the edges, we find ourselves going through the motions and we're passionless. We're doing more, but we're enjoying it less. And we can't quit on the weekends and take a break because then we'd really get behind. And so we live in this kind of state of a loss of patience and a loss of attention. Gone is the joy and the delight and the wonder of our childhood. Gratitude's in short supply, but irritation and criticism are in full supply. We get sloppy. There's a lack of excellence to our work. We become undependable. And on top of all of that, When we're too busy to attend to things, we lack sympathy for the needs of other people. Their needs are irritants. And if someone makes a change of plans and it affects our already overcrowded schedule, we get put out with them. These irritations, they lead to conflict and they lead to bitterness. And finally, to this crisis moment where we have to quit a bunch of stuff so that we can experience a short-term burnout so that we can get enough energy to get back on the merry-go-round and go through the whole cycle again. It's interesting, in Jesus' life, I mean, take the passage that Eric read to us this morning. You couldn't say that Jesus didn't have important things to do, right? He was on his way to the house of a little girl who was dying. And while he's on his way, he's surrounded by people. It's cacophonous, right? And he notices that someone had touched him and that power had been taken from him. And he stopped. He slowed down. He turned slowly to this woman. And there are moments like this all over the passages, all over the Gospels, right? Where when we read the life of Jesus, it's so easy to notice how it's very different from our life. I mean, because we got important stuff to do, right? I mean, Jesus, he had three years to save the world, reset creation. You know, but me, I've got to write a sermon for Sunday. It doesn't really compare, does it? And I say that in a joking way, but it should trigger us to, to look at Jesus and he just doesn't seem to be in a hurry. And he had three years to reset creation. He had three years to teach people to define the word gospel in a way they had not defined it before, to understand the kingdom of God in a way they hadn't understood it before, to start a community that was gonna have to last Until kingdom come. And yet. He doesn't seem to be in a hurry. Think about some of your favorite passages about Jesus in the Bible. And think about how many of them are moments where Jesus is slow. Like when he takes time in a culture that ignores children. To receive them. And the disciples are saying, come on, Jesus, we got stuff to get done, right? Or the time he stops and calls Zacchaeus down and says, let's have lunch. Or what about when he's reaching out and he's touching and he's healing the leper or sitting down with crowds on the mountaintop to teach or slowly living out those agonizing few moments on the cross, moments that just dragged by on and on and on. He had heavy demands. There was difficult work at hand. Yet his task and responsibility that that would drive so many of us just out of our mind, he's never in a hurry. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus never moved quick. I'm sure there were times when he did. I I don't imagine him entering the tabernacle and flipping over the tables in like slow-mo motion or anything like that. But his life was not frenetic. It wasn't jetting around, right? Breakfast in Jerusalem, lunch in Damascus, supper in Antioch. He had this wide margin of quiet leisure that defied the dehumanizing demands being placed on him by others. And as a result, when you were with Jesus, there was this gentle readiness to welcome others, to receive them with grace and with encouragement. He's the model of how to live. And we need to pay attention to the way he lived with time. Look, if you're a Christian, the three primary ways that your life should differ from those around you who are not Christians is what you do with your body when it comes to sex, what you do with your money when it comes to tithing, and what you do with your time. Money, sex, and time. These are the fundamental markers of what people who are walking with the creator of the way they were out of step with our world right now. How can we become like Jesus? How can we become people for whom the clock is not a slave master? People who are marked by a calmness of spirit and patience and joy and alertness. Would you have even noticed if that woman had touched the hem of your garment? Alertness to what God is doing around us. I'm not saying, again, that Jesus never moved quick. And and I'm not saying that you need to purge every aspect of your life that has hurry in it. The problem is we have taken those hurry seasons of our life that are legitimate and let them become the default DNA we live all of our lives. Some of us have jobs where efficiency is critical to the job and optimizing is. But when you let that become the way you move through life, there's a problem because you don't look like Jesus. So how can we live in this culture that's demanding we optimize, demanding that we're efficient, that's demanding that we kind of time is money, so speed up and there's more of it. But in the Bible, love is slow, so speed up and there's less of it. How can we become more like Jesus so that we become the friend of time instead of the slave of time? This is our series for Lent. This is our series between now and Easter. In the lead up to Easter, we're going to take this huge thing in our life, time. And we're going to see that in the Bible, God gives us wisdom so that time can be redeemed. Because it's fallen. It's broken. And Jesus came to redeem it like he came to redeem everything else. And we have to learn from Jesus How to live with time in such a way that we are not enslaved to time, but we're the friends of time. Now, in order to do that, what I'm going to do this Sunday is point out the three fundamental teachings in the Bible about time. Kind of a theology of time. And then over the next four weeks, we're going to take these three teachings. Next week, we're going to apply it to the whole life. Our bishop, Bishop Alan Hawkins, is going to be with us, and he's going to preach on how we can be faithful with a lifetime. And then I'm going to take a day, and then a week, and then a year, and we're going to see how the Bible talks about our relationship to time in all four of these places, over the course of our life, over the course of a day, over the course of a week, and over the course of a year. But this morning, we're going to start by laying the foundation, the root teachings of the Bible about time that we need to know. If we're going to be timeful, faithful when it comes to time. The first one is this, time is a gift from God. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, this was our passage, our Old Testament passage this morning. Listen to it. For everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and A time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. The point of the poem is that God has made the universe in such a way that there is appropriate time for everything. Time is a gift from God. It's one of God's created things. He created time. Time is God's creature. We see this on the first page of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, we see that the first finished work of God is the day. The day is God's first creature, something wondrous and mighty in His hand. Time is God's invention. When he created the world, over and over, he would stop, take time, look at what he's made, and declare it's good. That includes the creation of time. Time is one of God's good gifts. Do we look at it that way? Do we wake up and feel the gift of time. No, for too many of us, time is an enemy, and it makes us frantic. We, we take time for granted. We treat it like a tool. We take courses in time management. We treat it like a resource, like a commodity to be consumed. We strive against it, and as a result, we no longer see time in this way. This daily round of sunrise and sunset that marks the coming and the passing of each day, a symbol of hope and of majesty. Instead, sunrise and sunset have become symbols of the grind. One of my favorite TV shows is Bosch. And Bosch has this this kind of cinematography where quite frequently they'll do this like quick montage of the sun rising and setting. And like so many of TV shows and movies today, they use that montage to communicate to the viewer despair, the grind. It's a long way off from Psalm 136 verse 7. It was God who made the great lights, whose love endures forever. To the sun to rule in the day, whose love endures forever. The moon and stars in the night, whose love endures forever. You see, the psalmist that wrote that wasn't doing a quick cinematography kind of montage to communicate a grind, but instead to communicate joy and hope. We need to embrace time as a precious gift from God. Time is not our enemy. When you are relating to time as if time is your enemy, you've fallen into the fallenness of time. Because if you look at a gift I give you, and you see that gift as your enemy, do you see? God made time as a gift of love. It was his first creature, his first creation of love. He said it was good. We live in a society that's desecrated God's gift of time. We desecrate God's gift of time in three primary ways today. By being over busy, being in a hurry, and being distracted. Some of you struggle with one, some of you struggle with another, some of you are like batting a thousand, right? <laughs> so, but these three things, being over busy, too frequently in a hurry, or so distracted that you're kind of numb through life. Any of these moves, they are moves to desecrate the gift of God. We have a huge need to learn to receive God's gift and to stop wrestling with time as if it's our foe. And when we do this, we can trust that the time God gives us will be adequate for the work and the rest and the delight of, of humans. Look, I'm not trying to pile shame on you if, if you're like one of these people that's worn out by time. I'm trying to point out to you that time is a gift that's been broken by the fall and the redemption of Jesus applies to it just like it applies to our bodies just like it applies to the spiritual forces just like it applies to so many things Jesus died on the cross to redeem time and to offer us a way into the life where time has been redeemed just like he's offering us a way into the life where our bodies can be pure or into the life where we're not bound by greed when it comes money. So how do we do this? This fundamental thing in the Bible that time is fundamentally a gift. How can we get to a place where we have a redeemed relationship with it? And instead of it being a slave master, it becomes a beautiful place of love. How do we get there? Well, the second fundamental teaching in scripture about time is this. Time is structured By God. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every uh, matter under heaven. Look, what I mean is, in order to become friends of time, that's what you want to do with a gift from God, right? You want to relate to it as a good thing, you want to see it as a friend, as a gift. In order to become friends of time, We have to stop trying to manage and control time and learn to receive time on its own terms. That's the point of the poem in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. God has made for everything a season. To receive the gift of time, we have to receive it on its own terms. We can't change it. We can't try to change it. We have to accept the nature of time. And that the nature of time, this is going to sound kind of esoteric, but stay with me for just a moment. God made time to be an undifferentiated, not to be an undifferentiated quantity. See, our our watches, our clocks make time undifferentiated. Just one second is the same as another. It's a a measurement. It's just a minute is the same as a minute. It's just they tick by, they go by. But in the Bible, time is not these undifferentiated minutes. It's different kinds of seasons. God is the author of time. and, And he gave it a rhythm. And the rhythm is not a steady, second-hand kind of rhythm. Genesis chapter 8, verse 22 says, While the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God has given a rhythm to time, day and night, weeks, months, seasons. And we have to learn to receive that rhythm. We have to see that God has carved into the nature of the universe a rhythm to time. And part of our problem is that the invention of the clock has caused us to reduce time to a measurement of intervals. And the result is that we approach time as a commodity, as a thing to be leveraged, as a thing to wrestle. Instead of receiving time, For everything, there's a season. He's made everything beautiful in its time. What would it look like for you to wake up in a day and receive the day? Instead of waking up to a day that you're going to wrestle this thing down to the ground and then pass out on your pillow at the end of the day. These are two very different relationships to time. And, And the deal is that our schedules are partly to blame. But the real issue is the disposition of our hearts. The point is, our great need to master the chaos of the day is not a way of living with time as your friend. We need to learn to become friends of time. And and God gives us a lot of wisdom in Scripture for how to do this. We need to learn to receive time as a gift, We need to learn to inhabit the seasons of time. And third, a third critical teaching of Scripture. And this week, all we're doing is laying the foundation. And in the four weeks ahead, we're going to look at how to put this into practice so that we can walk through a crowd like Jesus and have space for people and space for our own souls and space for God. The third foundational teaching, time is a gift, time is structured. The third foundational teaching is that time is holy. Did you know the very first thing in the Bible declared holy is time? Go back to Genesis chapter 2. Let let me show you. This is the very first time the word holy comes up in the Bible. Genesis chapter 2 verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all this work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. It is the very first use of one of the most important words in the Bible. It's very hard to imagine a more important word in scripture than the word holy. It's definitely up there. Holy. What other word leads us into the majesty and mystery of God? And God is the author of this book. And when he introduces a key idea, a key theme, a key reality, he introduces it in a careful way. It's like if you're trying to have a very important conversation with somebody you really love. And you know there's this thing you've got to get out there. You know that you're going to have to be careful in how you bring it out. How does God bring out this word holy? He brings it out first by giving time the quality of holiness. Now, not only is that impressive just from a literary standpoint, the first time a theme comes up, it's also impressive if you compare this to other religions. When we read the other religious texts that were written around the same time as the Old Testament, you notice that this is a very different use of the concept of holiness in these other texts, after the God makes heavens and earth or whatever, he creates a holy place, maybe a holy mountain or a holy spring, where, some place where a sanctuary can be established. But in the Bible, the first holy thing is time. When history began, there was only one word, that holy, one thing to holiness applied to, that was time. Only later does God call his people to be holy? And only after that does he call out one place to be holy. The sanctity of time came before the sanctity of humans, and that came before the sanctity of any object. And remember in the Ten Commandments, the term holy is only applied to time. One of the ways that modernity is ravaging us is it's calling us to forget all of this deep truth in the Bible about time. And it's convincing us that there is no option but to be the slave of time. But it is for freedom that Christ has come to set us free. And that applies to the tyranny of fallen time. God creates all this stuff in the universe in Genesis chapter one and declares it's good, but then he takes a day and declares it's holy. God had a claim on time because it was God's creature This shows us that there's an ethical dimension to time. This shows us that this third foundational element of the Bible when it comes to time, that we've got to learn as we move forward and try to live better in our days, in our weeks, in our years, in our lifetimes. We've got to know that time is time. We're in some other relationship with it than that of friendship. We're in the fallenness of time. We've got to learn that time has a structure by God and we need to learn from God's structure how to structure our times. And we need to know that time is holy. And what this shows us is that when we are slaves to time, it is not only psychologically harmful, it is morally wrong. It is a thing God sent his son to redeem us from. The whole heart of this series of messages is that the real problem with overbusiness, or ubiquitous hurry or distraction, the real problem is a heart problem. And that our Lord loves us so much, He came to deliver us and he came to set us free he came to order our hearts that beneath our time problem is a disordered heart problem and and I'm not saying that's your fault like so many of the other places we're wrapped up in evil so much of it we don't choose we just get landed in right who chooses to have a disease that's ravaging their body right Who chooses so many of the hurts and pains and sins and struggles in our life. We don't, most of them we don't choose. Most of them, the powers have gotten a hold of us. And so we need to cry out to God. Help me live with my body as a gift from you. Help me live with money as a gift from you. And help me to live with time as one of your good gifts. Help me to become like Jesus hurrying in the moments I should, but that's not the fundamental characteristic of my life. You can't speed walk with God, right? Back in 1979, this Japanese theologian wrote this, um, this little book of devotionals, and the title of it was The Three Mile an Hour God, that when God took on flesh, he walked three miles an hour. That's the average speed that a human walks. Was he foolish? I mean, could God have gotten a better, like, redemption story if he had incarnated when we had a capacity for more speed? Do you think God is like, oh, man, what I could have done? (laughs) Busyness and hurry and distraction are not a symptom of our commitments. They're a symptom of the fall. We've got to put our hearts... In the picture, it's not just enough to slow down and to simplify our lifestyles. We need to connect with God. And we need to learn from God how to live in this moment we live in like true humans. And that's our journey over the course of Lent. So, look, let's do this. Um, I'm gonna pray in just a moment, but first, I'm gonna be very quiet. And give you a chance to silently pray. If you are bound up in a relationship with time that needs to be different, then take a few moments to ask God to help you. And He will, but He'll do it slowly. Every now and then He delivers, but typically He disciples. He took over a billion years to make the Blue Ridge Mountains. Clearly, God doesn't mind going slow. So pray this and look to the Lord for help. And let's give him these 40 days to see some of what he can begin to do in our lives.